you are the great grandchild of someone and you are the great, great grandchild of someone and all of our predecessors made choices that have created the world that we have inherited, that we are now living in. I mean, we are living in the future of our predecessors, of our ancestors. So we're doing the same thing for future generations. We're creating futures that they will live in. Hey everybody, I'm Julie and welcome to Women With Cool Jobs. Each episode will feature women with unique, trailblazing and innovative careers. We'll talk about how she got here, what life is like now, and actionable steps that you can take to go on a similar path or one that's all your own. This podcast is about empowering you. It's about empowering you to dream big and to be inspired. You'll hear from incredible women in a wide variety of fields, and hopefully some that you've never heard of before. Women who build robots and roadways, firefighters, C-suite professionals surrounded by men, social media mavens, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm so glad we get to go on this journey together. Hello, everybody. This is Julie Berman, and welcome to a new episode of Women with Cool Jobs. So do I have a cool episode for you? Rebecca Ryan is a futurist, and she talks about multiple futures with an S. And this idea of planning for multiple futures was so mind-blowing to me because oftentimes when I have planned for myself personally or planned in relation to my family, like I've only sort of planned with one goal in mind and it was like one future, right? I just like saw one thing in there that I was trying to get to, trying to reach trying to solve. And the idea of what Rebecca does with her clients, she often works with like big organizations, big groups of people, often in the government or government adjacent jobs. And she is talking about these multiple plausible futures with them. And it's fascinating because she goes through these different scenarios with them to plan And there's a whole bunch of factors that they consider for each one. She shares the steps with us that are part of what she does with clients as a futurist. And one of the other fascinating things that we talk about that I've literally never heard explicitly said is that they think about what it is going to be to plan for future now to take actions now and how that's not only going to affect us later, but how that's going to affect our children or our grandchildren or our great grandchildren, our great, great grandchildren. So sort of, you know, extrapolating out into the future, are they going to be planning things that are to their benefit for the people who we don't even know yet, but yet we're making these decisions that are so going to affect what they're doing and how they live and their quality of life. So it was so fascinating. And we we discuss what it is like to do her job. We talk about all the details of some of the processes, but then she's also kind enough to share how we can be 
a futurist for ourselves, how we can think about these multiple plausible futures and apply it to our own life to empower ourselves to be somewhere in the future where we want to be, to have it look like what will be, you know, meaningful, purposeful life. And it was just such an incredible interview. Like I love learning about planning because I'm a huge planner. I've always been the one in my own family, um, even since I was young, like I would be the one who was the planner who would plan the trips when I was like 10 or 12, whenever I started that. I planned when I was in high school because I fell in love with the French language. I had friends who I'd met and they spoke French and I just thought it was like the most gorgeous language ever. And I loved the Eiffel Tower and I wanted to visit the French Riviera and meet French boys. And I was planning for myself at a young age that I wanted to study abroad in college. And I did. And, you know, ever, I've just been planning for as long as I can, I can remember. And so this was a really fun episode for me personally, for that reason. And also for the place of life, you know, where I'm at now, the last few years have been so crazy, so difficult at times. I have little kids, I have a new baby and, you know, just there's, changes that have been coming that we knew about and some that we obviously didn't know about with the pandemic and just, you know, life always has new surprises for you, things that you plan and things that you don't. And this is really, really powerful tools to have in your tool belt to be able to try to plan for what you want in the future. So for me, this is just like amazing timing because I definitely plan on doing this for myself and my family. And I hope that it is something that you can apply to yourself and those you love and share this with people as well. There are some free tools that Rebecca talks about. If you want to learn about being a futurist specifically, or if it interests you, it's such a neat career. There's so much potential for growth. She said there's only 450 futurists specifically that are, that are um, recognized by an organization that she certified with as a futurist. And there's so much growth potential, whether it's, you know, being part of a government entity, whether it's being in an organization, like working for Disney, there's just like infinite potential. I feel like with this job to figure out how you can think about the future and where you can apply that. I think you can just run wild with the infinite ways this can be used. So enjoy this very cool episode. I hope that it makes an impact in your life, whether or not you want to be a futurist. And thank you as always for listening to Women with Cool Jobs. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being on Women with Cool Jobs. It's my pleasure to be here with you and all your listeners who are interested in cool jobs. Thank you. So you have a very cool job. You are a professional futurist and an economist and an entrepreneur and so many things. We're going to talk about the futurist part of what you're doing. And it is really incredible because you track trends and you help figure out what the future is likely going to be and how we can be ready for the future. You often do this for um, organizations, 
like the Chambers of Commerce, Economic Development Agencies, and other organizations that are in the public sector or related to the public sector. And this is just such an incredible and like mind-blowing job that you have for me because we've all kind of wished like, I wish I could know what's, you know, what's coming around the bend or like, is there any way when I'm planning something even for myself, like, how do I do a better job of that? How do I, and I'm a huge planner. So like, I'm such a huge fan of what you do. And I'm so excited to learn from you about what it is to be a professional futurist, what that means, how you got into it. And like, we're going to talk about so many good things. So I'm excited. Woo! Clapping. <laughs> Yay. Thank you for the clapping. So in your own words, Rebecca, will you describe what you do? Yes. I think the the easiest way maybe to understand what a futurist is, is here's an everyday example. As I mentioned to you right before we started recording, Julie, my family is going on a vacation next week. And it is a camping vacation. And it is in northern Wisconsin, where we will be camping. And one of the things that I did was I looked at the weather forecast for while we're going to be there, because it's going to help me know, okay, it's going to get down to the 40s at night, that means I have to pack my warmer sleeping bag. It might rain one of those days. That means we probably need to pack our tarp because we'll be cooking under a tarp. We're still going to be outdoors, but at least the tarp will help keep us dry while we're cooking. So what I do as a futurist is I try to predict the weather so that our clients can be best prepared for the weather. So I'm not a meteorologist. This is just a metaphor. Right. But I am trying to help clients understand and imagine what the future will be so they know how to pack for that future. And in many cases, you mentioned our clients are in the public sector, they're public sector adjacent. They can also help shape that future. So an example would be, I live in a city, Madison, Wisconsin, and a few years ago, the city redid the zoning for the city, and they decided that one of their priorities was to create more density. They don't want sprawl where they you know, move out and out and out into the suburbs. We take our farmland very seriously here. We take our topsoil very seriously here. So they don't want to go out and eat up that farmland. We want to have food security. So we want to preserve our farmland. And that means we have to make better use of the areas that are already developed. So redevelopment and infill, it's often called. So okay. now what you can see in my neighborhood is a few single family homes that had maybe been two or three stories. As those homes are getting redeveloped, very creative architects and developers are saying, how can we turn this from a single family home into a multifamily home? So maybe turning it into an interesting duplex. Hmm. Or I even saw a really interesting quadplex, like you would not know that it was housing for families. Wow. But in fact, it is. Some of these homes are being turned into cooperatives, where okay. the co-op model is, I'm going to rent my private bedroom 
right? Bedroom and living room, but I'm going to share bathrooms. I'm going to share kitchens. And it ends up being far more affordable as most communities are trying to deal with affordable housing. Cooperatives can be a much more affordable way to live. So in any event, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to help clients imagine and predict what the futures could be and then put in place policies, new zoning ordinances, new ways of thinking about what transit will look like or what housing will or could look like, et cetera. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that overview. And the examples, that's so interesting because, you know, where I am in Phoenix and the suburbs of Phoenix, it's all about the sprawl. I mean, it's been sprawling since I've, since I've been in existence and before that. So it's, it's really interesting to hear that example in particular. And I think that um, what I'm really curious to talk about is not only the specifics of your job and what you do with the organizations you work with, but I would love to also get some insight into like how us as individuals can apply some of what you do to our own lives, because it is such an incredible skill set that you possess. And I think it's one that I don't think many people know exists. And yet it's such an important one for the future. And one of the quotes that I just want to read, because I loved what you said as I was doing research in different areas was so, so profound. And I, and I think also now that I'm a mom and I have children, it's like, oh my gosh, I think about the future in such a different way because of, you know, where I am and my, and my point in life. So you said that now in my business, I get to wake up helping clients design better futures for kids that I'll probably never meet. And that's very motivating for me. Yeah. Yeah. In my, my, one of my last books, Regeneration, I dedicated it to the great, great grandchildren of my godson, Avery. And uh, Avery was just over at our house yesterday. He's in his early 30s now. He's got two kids. They're going to adopt a third child. And I've been able to read bedtime stories and rock Avery to sleep. I've been able to read bedtime stories and rock his two children to sleep. If I play my cards right, I'll probably be able to rock Avery's grandchildren to sleep but I don't think I will know Avery's great-grandchildren. And I definitely, I mean, barring science, some crazy science, I don't (laughs) think I'll ever meet his great-grandchildren. But to think about it in this way, Julie, you become a parent. So you start to think about the life that your children and their children will inherit. Yeah. But if you back it up and reverse it, you are the great-grandchild of someone and you are the great, great grandchild of someone and all of our predecessors made choices that have created the world that we have inherited, that we are now living in. I mean, we are living in the future of our predecessors, of our ancestors. So we're doing the same thing for future generations. We're creating futures that they will live in. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that literally blew my mind. I think I've never thought about it that way. And the idea that we're living our ancestors' future. Like, it's, I mean, it's a really interesting way to think about things. And I think the reason why I was so interested in talking to you, and I'd love to hear you speak about this for a little bit, is just about the idea of 
when we think about our future, and I know you talk about multiple futures, not just one. When we think about our future, when we try to plan for our future, what are the things that you are considering? What are the things that you as a professional in this type of work look for and do? Because I think this is such an interesting part of life is that sometimes, you know, even I find myself, you know, it's like we think about the past, what we've done in the past, what we want to do differently. And, you know, sometimes we spend so much time just in our personal lives going over previous conversations or previous things that we did wrong and like we replay them in our mind. And then we don't actually do that in the future. And we don't take the time to actually imagine our future and how we would feel and all these things in that same way. And um, I have to give credit to this idea. There's a woman who I listen to as a great podcast and she's a life coach called Brooke Castillo. And she talks all about the idea of instead of going over and over in our past in like reliving those moments and sort of re-traumatizing ourselves essentially. Like how can we actually take that same time and think about our future and plan our future and live in the emotions of our future? And so I think in the context, like, and your job is like just sort of blowing that up to, you know, the nth scale in such an important way. So I would love to hear your perspective about like, how do you do that? Not only for your clients that you work with, but just like in general, what is your process? How do you do that? Because it's it's such a like such an incredible skill set. Well, Julie, it's this is such a generous question. And it just happens to hit on two of my favorite things, which are foresight, the futuring work that I do and okay. professional and personal development. Before I became a futurist, the biggest part of my personal library was health self help books, you know, like how to just live your best life and, and create the future that you want to live in. And I think that's I, I really love what Brooke Castillo is talking about, like rather than just ruminate on your past and what you could have said differently or done differently. I mean, what, I think what one thing we can all agree on is we cannot take action on the past, right? It's done. Like let it die a good death and <laughs> focus on what you can impact, what you can do. So, so then I think the question that you're asking is how do futurists do this differently um, when they're thinking about the future? And is there anything from the Futurist Toolkit that could help any listener, regardless of where she, they are in their life, build a better future for themselves? And so I think there are probably a couple of things that we do differently that could help anybody in their in their personal future. And so let's just use you know, like your life, not your life, Julie, although we will probably be doing some of this back and forth, but you listener, like think of your life and just hold in your mind right now, the age that you are today. Okay. And then think of the time horizon that you want to play with in this pretend future that we're going to be putting some actual foresight skills and tools into and make it meaningful for you. So like, I'll use myself as an example. I'm 50 as of this recording. My partner is 61. And we're talking, I'm talking about kind of 
winding down my career over the course of the next 10 years so that we can spend more time together because, you know, she's got 10 year, 11 year head start on me. There's a certain amount of time where we're going to continue to be active and healthy. And I'm not being fatalistic. I'm just, this is the truth, right? We all get older, parts start falling off. (laughs) I feel much different at 50 than I did at 40. So I'm I'm thinking for myself, I have about a 10-year horizon before I'm going to be really done with the big grind of life. So what are the other realities in my own life? Like over the next 10 years, my metabolism, from a health perspective, my metabolism will probably continue to slow if I don't do anything about it. I may you know, it's possible that I may have a diagnosis of some sort, like each, each decade that we get older, the likelihood that we're going to get some sort of a diagnosis goes up. I'm not trying to be I'm just trying to be realistic here. Like these are realistic assumptions that we can make thinking. So now for the for you, Julie, for the listener to think about your own what what do you what what horizon do you want to think about for yourself? Mm -hmm. So for you, Julie, um, you've got young kids, maybe you want to think about the the horizon until your last kid is kind of like in school full time. I don't know what that would what that time horizon is for you. How many years will that be from now? So, well, if, if he goes, he's just born um, a few months ago, he's a four month old. So let's assume like, five or six years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So like your next five or six years are going to be family are going to be kid intensive, really kid intensive. And then after that, there's probably going to be a little more Julie time. And that's going to continue more and more Julie time will continue for a while until they're completely launched. And then you're going to be empty nesters. So there are a few horizons that you can be thinking about as you think about your future. Mm -hmm. So you heard me do it. For you, Julie, you should do this for listeners. What are the assumptions that are going to be true over that horizon that you're thinking about and, and get as clear as you can about these. I write these things down, like what these assumptions are. And then you want to think in multiple futures, but you're going to do one at a time. Okay. So the first future that I encourage you to think about is the expectable future. So that's like if Julie Berman and her spouse continue to behave and act in the ways that they have for years and years, what's the expectable future? And that could include everything from the norms that your family will create over these years, to the kinds of vacations you will or won't take, to the kinds of money you will or won't earn, to the kinds of relationships that are going to be most valuable to you. And you can kind of play out this expectable future so that by the time you get to the end of that, if we're, if we're sticking with that five or six year time frame, mm-hmm. So after the next five or six years, your family is probably going to look like this. Your relationships are probably going to have these kinds of complexions. And for some of you, that might feel like a pretty awesome future, right? But if you don't right now have good habits or the kind of habits that are giving you the results that you want, that expectable future might not be terrific, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. I'll use I'll use myself as an example. I did a futuring exercise exactly like I'm talking about right now for myself mm-hmm. when my business was going through a change. 
And my habits were so poor that when I played out that expectable future, it was not a cute look. I was like, oh my God, if I keep doing what I have always done, my expectable future will not be terrific. Mm. So the, the value of doing an exercise like this is just to bring the future into view. You know, yeah. it's not something that's happening way out there. It's something that we bring nice and close to our face. So it gets highly defined, like high okay. definition futures. We're bringing it closer to our face. So first future is expectable future. Okay. Okay. Second future is a challenging future. So this one can be difficult for the Pollyannas in the audience to think about. But for those of you in the audience who are preppers, you're like, yes, let's get to the challenging future. You're rubbing your hands <laughs> together. So in the challenging future, we're going to assume two things. So if you're taking notes at home, this is like an A and a B. The first thing to assume is that your external environment will become more challenging. And when I say external environment, these are things you can't control. So the external environment might be like, oh, we have a recession or my job gets more challenging. Like my jerk boss just becomes more jerky or my, you know, so all the things in the external environment that you can't control become more difficult. That's A. And then B is internally, the things that you can control, you also make some missteps there. So uh, the easy one for me to think about is I continue to to not value my health. I continue to just kind of let my health get worse because my health has gotten a little bit worse during the pandemic. I'm not as active as I used to be. I'm taking shortcuts in places I wouldn't have in the past. Your individual results may vary, but when I'm thinking mm -hmm. about myself, these are easy things to think about that I can control or I can influence. I'm just kind of picking the easy button. And if I play that out over time, if you play out those that challenging future over the time, where do you end up? Right. In the horizon that you're thinking about. So I've heard people say, so for those of you who are the Pollyannas in the crowd, you're shuddering right now. You're like, I can't even think about this because if I think about it, I'm bringing it into my reality. I definitely understand the, I understand the instinct to like not think about this challenging future. And I will tell you that some of these things are outside of your control. And in the same way that when you were in school, you had to do fire drills I was raised in the Midwest. We had to do tornado drills. The reason you do a drill is so that when and if, I hope it doesn't happen, but when or if it does happen, you're like, I've already thought this through, mm. right? I've already thought this through. The preppers in the audience will tell you, this is why you do the challenging future so that you've got your go bag ready. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now, you know where we're headed. We're headed to the third future. Okay. a visionary future. And in this visionary future, we again look at A and B. What are the external situ you know, circumstances that could happen in this visionary future that would make your future surprisingly successful? So these are things that are outside of your control, mm. right? But that could really help things along. So maybe you 
get an unexpected inheritance or you get an unexpected break, you know, something that you would like to have happen, but you're not counting on it. You know, it's kind of in someone else's control. So maybe the boss turns to you and says, hey, we really do want you to step up in this situation. Or maybe your kid gets a scholarship, you know, so you don't have to have to pay college tuition. But these kind of external things that could make your future sunnier. And then you've got to think about the second set of factors, the internal factors, the things that you can control or influence, that if you just turned up the volume on those things a bit, over time, you would have this surprisingly successful future. So after all that, what you've done is you've created an array of plausible futures from a very challenging future to an expectable future to a very visionary future. And that is that is how you do futures thinking. You apply the rumination and the things that you, the mental energy that you might apply to rethinking the past and you say, hey, let me think about my futures. Yeah. And so the first discipline is to think in multiple plausible futures. Hey, I love that. And that is so like, it's, so it just seems so doable when you explain it that way, but I don't think that it would have ever occurred to me. Right. And especially the fact that you do the multiple futures. I mean, I think that's really powerful. Like I've been a planner my whole life. I love to plan. And when I can't plan, like in the pandemic, like that was very painful and difficult for me because I was literally like, just tell me the end date and I will figure it out. It's also the same reason I will probably never do a PhD because there is no end date and that pains me. I don't want more gray hair. So it's just like, I I love this. Not only are you sort of able to think things through, but it's like all the different scenarios in different circumstances. And so I'm curious, like with your you know, because I know you gave us an example that we can do for ourselves. Is that the same exact process that you use then, but on the the more large scale thinking with doing with corporations or the organizations or the government entities? Yeah, it is. It is the exact okay. same process. And I took us and our listeners, us, we together, we're all on this journey together. If you're listening, you're with us. I took us directly to the second step in our foresight process, which is the imagining phase. Okay. When I'm working with a city or with an organization, the previous step is the sensing phase. And I didn't Mm. call that out super specifically, but remember when I said, look realistically at what's happening in your life and what's likely to happen over the future that you want to explore. That's what we're doing in the sensing phase is so a city example is a really easy one, I think that most people can identify with. So if we're working on the next 20 years of say, Madison, Wisconsin, where I live, one of the things we're looking at is how is our population changing? Mm. Are more people moving here? Or are more people leaving here? Are we a growing population? or Are we a shrinking population? So for example, U-Haul every year publishes the top list of cities that have had one-way moves. So Madison last year was the 
fifth most moved to city in terms of one-way U-Haul rentals. So that tells us something about mm. what Madison, what's happening in Madison, right? That we've been growing over the last several years as we keep popping up on this U-Haul growth index. Well, as we're growing, this is where the sprawl conversation comes in. How do we want to grow? Do we want to grow out or do we want to grow up? And Madison has made the choice to grow up because of the farmland um, yeah. concern that I mentioned earlier. So you can do very similar things for yourself. Just take inventory of what the trends are in your own life. You know, are you getting smarter as a professional or are you sort of stalling as a professional or are you even maybe backsliding a little bit as a professional? Like in your home life, is your home life getting happier? Is it getting more restless? You know, what's happening there over the last few years? So there are a lot of ways to apply this sensing phase, this first mm -hmm. phase to your own life before you go into the imagining phase. Yeah. And it's just, I think it's really interesting that, you know, we can apply it to ourselves, but then also how you do it on such a large scale. And in the ways that you do it, it affects not only the organizations that you're working with, but obviously many other people who they are either serving or trying to help. And so I would love to, you know, talk a little bit about what are a few examples that you can give us of, you know, maybe things that you've worked on, like uh, solutions that you've tried to find or um, challenges that you're trying to help organizations overcome? If you could kind of give us like a, a sense of what are the things you're solving and doing? Yeah. So we don't ever, well, it's very rare that we're, we know upfront what we're going to end up with at the back end. So okay. let me, let me zoom out just for one second and say we use a four step foresight process. Step okay. one is the sensing phase. So we're sensing for the changes that are happening so that we can account for those in the imagining phase. And then in the imagining phase, we're doing exactly the process we just walked through. We're we're, we're exploring several plausible futures, how okay. these futures could actually end up. In the third phase, we're defining the future we want based on the plausible futures we explored. You know, and there's, there's a little bit of a, of a trick that we use between imagining multiple plausible futures. Cause some of your listeners might be saying, well, just choose the visionary future. Just right. ignore the expectable future, ignore the challenging future and just do the, the visionary future. But there are many reasons why you can't just do that. And I think you can probably understand in a, in a community where there are so many different variables. Like I'm working with a community right now in the Mountain West that is having significant water shortages. Mm. Well, they've been growing and growing and growing. So if you just look at their population projections, you're like, wow, they're really growing. Well, now the EPA is saying you really need to significantly reduce your water. And so you're facing this point where you're like, will we continue to have people move here? And if they do move here, it's going to make our water restrictions even more pronounced. Right. So there, you know, it's a multivariable beast we're looking at when yeah. we look at something as big as a community or a region. So when we get to that defining phase, we don't just pick the visionary future because there are too many variables that are outside of our control. We're trying to, in that defining phase, Define a future that is plausible and that is ambitious within the constraints and all the things that we've looked at in the first two phases. 
And then in the fourth phase, many futurists don't do this, but in the fourth phase, we're asking, how do we now do the future? How can we start to create the future we want? Mm. So you can think of it as like a mountain, you know, in the first couple phases of foresight, we're trying to take you to the mountaintop and see what your futures could be. And then we want to bring you back down off the mountain and say, okay, let's define what we want that future to be. And then let's help you design some projects and some initiatives that you can start today that can help you create the future that you want. So no future gets started until something starts happening. And that's what we're trying to do in that final doing phase. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the full process. Now to your question, what does this actually look like with a community? I'll use Charleston, South Carolina as an example. It's a okay. very popular place to visit. You know, so a lot of us have some exposure to Charleston, or we've probably seen it on a list as one of the best places to visit. And Charleston has been growing by leaps and bounds. And so the project that we went in to work on was, what would the quality of life in Charleston, South Carolina be when it reached a million people? Mm. So in this case, we didn't have a time horizon because Charleston had been beating all of its population projections. Wow. So we just said, let's just say when it's a million people, because that's going to be here before we know it. And technically, we looked at the three county region around in the Charleston metro because very infrequently does growth happen in just one zip code. It usually yes. has a regional, a regional play. So we sat down and we did this process. And the first thing we did was the sensing phase. And we said, what are all the trends that are impacting Charleston's growth, right? And what's really happening with this growth? How quickly do we think we're going to beat this projection? And we looked at things like, you know, is housing growing at, the, at a fast enough pace? Is prosperity being shared among all people? Or is it being concentrated among the majority population? What's happening to people who aren't sharing in the, in the, in the prosperity that's being created? What are people's commute times projected to be? Like, and on and on we went around what the, what the sensing phase was telling us about projections. Then we started doing the imagining phase. And we did not one, not two, not three scenarios. I think we ended up with maybe 14 different scenarios Wow! in each of those three zones. So we did several in the challenging future, wow. several in the expectable future, and several in the visionary future. And then we looked at all of those futures and we said, okay, then this is where we go from the imagining phase to the defining phase. Here's the little trick we do is we say, what could we, Charleston, and this was the city leaders, this was the chambers of commerce, this was the workforce development people, this was the people who worked in housing and construction. What can we control or influence, control or influence that would help us if, if we did have a challenging future that would help it be not as bad as it might be? And in a visionary future, would help it be even more surprisingly successful. So these things that we're trying to identify here as we as we zero in on the defining phase is we call them crossover levers. Hmm. They are levers because we can pull them up and down. We have some agency over these things. We can okay. control or influence these levers. And the reason we call them crossover is because they will help us in multiple 
kinds of futures. I mean, imagine the magic to that. So one of the things that we found in Charleston, and this was a surprise, was that the quality of Charleston's roads and bridges were going to help them regardless of how fast growth happened or how many people ended up living there. And here's what I mean. Charleston is a community that is really connected by a couple of major bridges. And when there is a lane out on one of those bridges, it messes everybody up. This actually happened to us during our process. There was a, a lane of traffic that was closed on one of the major two major bridges and I don't know, maybe 10 people couldn't make the meeting or of 10 of 80 people couldn't make the meeting because they were so stuck in that traffic, they couldn't get to the meeting on time. Wow. So one of the things that fell out of the first three phases of this process was if this community didn't get its act together around its infrastructure, people were going to come, but they were going to quickly leave. Because they were going to say, what the heck? So some other data that we found out, for example, was that it was really common that people would have to replace their windshield in this region because the roads were so bad that it was common that asphalt would be kicked up and break their windshield. Wow! So the number of windshield claims that were happening in this region were much higher than in North Carolina, for example, because the quality of the roads was so poor. So that was one of probably seven things that we identified that the community had to work on if they were really going to attract and keep these million people who were headed their way. Okay. So this was very surprising. One of the lead sponsors of this project was the Chamber of Commerce. And it is very unusual for a Chamber of Commerce to say, we need to raise taxes. But the Chamber saw the writing on the wall with the ridges, bridges and the roads. Okay. And they said, we've got to give political cover and enable the, the, the legislature to create a gas tax. Wow. And they weren't successful the first time, but now the state of South Carolina has agreed to a total of five cents a year over three years, a 15 cent per gallon gas tax that is going into funding improvements to to roads and bridges. Wow. So you can see where we go through this whole process and we end up, one of the things that ends up happening is we create a coalition of people who are going to create a new tax to improve the quality of the roads. Thank you. And it's so interesting because as you were talking, like I was thinking about not only do you get to work with so many different people in different roles within different communities, which sounds so fun, but also just sort of that aha moment that you all had of like, wow, this, you know, one lane really affects so many different things. And not only does it affect people within that like immediate moment of just the frustration, right. Of trying to get to this meeting, you can't get to this meeting. You need to get to this meeting. But just the implications that that has for the future and the community and what they want things to look like and what they want for their growth and all the things that are related to like being involved in a community. And that I do love that area. Like my husband and I went there 
I was pregnant with my first kiddo and it was like the best trip. We had just such a blast. So I can see why that would be so important to them is like, it is one of the most neat places. And so to make sure that people moving there really love it and want to stick around is so essential. And I think that, you know, that would not be ever something that maybe people would, if they're ticking off a list, right? Like, how do we get people to stay? You'd maybe go to like, oh, let's make sure we have more cool food venues and like, (laughs) right? Like this type of attraction. But it's really interesting to hear that example and how that came about. And I'm curious to going into the different stakeholders and people that you work with. Oftentimes, because of your sort of your job, are you feeling like you are mostly listening? Are you leading conversations? Like, I'm curious about what you feel like are the most important skills in in this area, because you're not only dealing with so many different types of people um, with different, I'm imagining very different passions or visions for what they want to happen or not happen, but also just different projects all over the country. Um, And you can correct me, maybe all over the world. I'm not sure. (laughs) So I'm curious, like, what do you think is most important in your career and your expertise? Hmm. This is two things are happening in my mind. One thing that's happening in my mind is that I think the research shows that when you ask a valedictorian, like, oh, how did you get to be valedictorian? Whatever they tell you is not scientifically correct. Um, You know, they're (laughs) going to tell you about their folder filing system, you know, or how they (laughs) like code their notes. Um, And that probably doesn't have as much to do with it. So from the very unscientific uh, reflections of Rebecca Ryan's head, I do think that one of the most important things that my team and I do is we take questions really seriously. And what I mean by that is there are a couple of books, A More Beautiful Question and The Big Book of Beautiful Questions. And when, and the reason this is important in my profession, in my opinion and experience, is when people come to you because they're trying to figure out the future, they are really trying to resolve something. You know, like you said, Julie, most people don't know what this is. Most people have no idea what professional foresight is. That There's a reason for that. We don't teach it in our schools. Although my former professor, Peter Bishop, he's trying to change that in America with his effort called Teach the Future, which I think is global. He's trying to get it into K-12 curriculum. Amazing. There are very few colleges or universities that teach professional foresight. So I'll just, for listeners who are interested, the University of Houston has an excellent five-day program that you can just kind of get your feet wet, learning some of these tools and techniques and methodologies. And if you, right now, I mean, there are so many people who are trying to put foresight curriculum online. You can, if you just Google, like, learn how to become a futurist or learn strategic foresight, you'll find some great references. But the, the reason questions are so important is because when things are changing or are disrupted, having answers is irrelevant. The answer that you had in 2019 to something is probably irrelevant, you know, now. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. Even the answer you may have had in early 2020 may be irrelevant now because things, people, the zeitgeist right now, it's changing. It's very much in flux. So it really doesn't matter who thinks they have the answer or what the answer is. I think it's far more powerful to ask questions, to ask good questions and meaningful questions. So to me, I will spend, I just did a keynote a couple of weeks ago for the Idaho Housing and Finance Authority. And maybe 60% of the time I was preparing that talk was spent thinking about what my opening question would be. Wow. So I, I fleshed out the entire talk and I thought, okay, what is going to be the question that is going to most prop them open, that is just going to most open them up for what the future could be? And the question I ended up settling on was, how can a state with Idaho's growth and prosperity have so many people with inadequate housing? And that was my opening question. And then I went to the audience and I said, is anybody willing to share how many homeless youth they have in their K-12 school system? Mm. One woman rose her hand and raised her hand and I asked which school district. It was the Boise School District. They had 4,000 students without homes in that wow. school district. Uh -huh. Right? So how can it be that we are both this prosperous and we have 4,000 schools in one dis 4,000 kids in one district alone who aren't housed. Like these yeah. things create a, a, a dichotomy in your mind that you can't rationalize. So having a really good question, I think, is an important job of a futurist. Beyond that, yes, absolutely listening is critical. And not just listening for what people say, but people's resistance to the future is often about fear fear of their own irrelevance, fear that they will die, you know, and not see the future that we're working on creating together. So you have to listen carefully for what people are actually expressing in their answers, because then you can work with that. So if, if people have a fear of being irrelevant, or people have a fear that they're not going to be around to see this future, and often they'll joke about it, like, well, I won't even be here, bah ha ha. But there's some pain in that, right? Mm -hmm. But th that gives you the opportunity to then say, you know, we are living in our ancestors' future. And what yeah. could we do today that would make your great grandkids so grateful for the choice choices you made while you were in charge, you know, while you were calling the shots? So good questions, deep listening. And then I think just having a few really good techniques that you can do cold. There are hundreds of foresight techniques for all different kinds of use cases. And the one that we shared that we talked about, like just being able to do three different scenarios of the future, extremely useful for people. Light bulbs start going off <laughs> over their heads. Yeah, I can see that. I'm going to have to do it for, I'll have to see if my husband will do it with me too, because it would be a really interesting exercise just where we are in life right now. Um, and it's, it's like at this moment, because we're still dealing with a tiny baby, it's like very hard to imagine anything more than like next week at the moment. We're just trying to get through, but it's like such a powerful 
example of being mindful and then also making sure that we're going where we want to go and not just letting it happen, you know, and because sometimes it's like when life just happens, you're like, wait, it's how is this September? Right, exactly. (laughs) And you know, it's that's so natural, Julie, because there are going to be times in your life where you are just sleepwalking through life. I yeah. mean, you probably you and your husband probably literally are. We're we're tired, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're tired, right? But if you've done the work to bubble up occasionally, to just zoom out and look at the overall arc, if you're still pretty sure that the arc is headed in a direction that you want it to go in, yeah. then it's okay to sleepwalk for a while. But you have to have that ability to, listeners can't hear, but like I'm zooming my hands up to sort of see the big picture and then zooming them together to do the sort of the small picture, the day to day. And that's, it's almost like breathing, you know, you inhale, you exhale, you inhale, you exhale. So as long as you've got some sort of a system to take an inhale and get bigger so that as you're exhaling, you know, you're headed in the right direction, you'll, you'll be good to go. And I, I really do want to encourage you. This isn't what I do on a day to day basis is helping individuals with their own futures. But I've heard from so many people who have said, I mean, these are the people who really gush about foresight when they say my family and I did this together mm-hmm. or a past client who, um, her, her son was injured during his his boot camp training and had to be discharged from the military wow. because of a pervasive injury that he wasn't going to recover from. And she said, we had to sit down and do foresight together for his future because he had such a huge disruption in what his arc had was he thought his arc was going to be. So yeah. I think it's these personal cases of foresight that ended up being extremely powerful. Yeah. And I, I love that this episode's a bit special because, you know, normally we, we focus just on like a career profile, but I was so interested to talk to you also because now where we are in this season and I think time in the world, there's, as you mentioned, like so much changing. It just feels like what we even knew last year is not the case now. And so who knows what's happening next year. So I appreciate so much sort of you're giving us this tool or, you know, and, and these things that we can do in our own lives. And then to hear how it applies on a broader scale for communities and, and, um, other entities that you're working with. And I want to go back a bit now and ask, like, how did you get into this area? Because it is such a unique, a unique field. And how, like, what was your schooling like or your education, if we could kind of go into that as well? You bet. You bet. So being a professional futurist is still a very rare job in the United States, at least. The apex of foresight in the U.S. was between President Roosevelt's administration, President Carter's administration, because between FDR and Carter, futurists were used in the White House. It was very, we had an office of the future. Um, Eventually, those things just got defunded and fell out of favor. And, you know, I would argue that we're now feeling some of the effects of that because the (laughs) The few, we're always so surprised when the future happens, but we had a we had a really good cadence of foresight in this country for 
generations. Um, and now we're in a lull period. So it's not uncommon that people haven't heard of what a professional futurist is or didn't know that it was a profession or a vocation. And we also, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have training programs. I mean, I think Notre Dame has got in their business school, they require foresight. The University of Houston has got undergraduate, graduate, and PhD programs. There are a few other schools around the country that have foresight. The University of Swinburne in Australia has a program. So my way in was not traditional. I mean, I got degrees in international relations and economics. Those are my two undergraduate degrees. I dropped out of two different I dropped out of an MBA program and I dropped out of an MPA program because I had started my own business and I just couldn't justify the cost and the class time for these programs because, I mean, in in reality, I was getting the best master's degree I could by running my own business. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I learned that foresight was a profession during the Great Recession of 2008-2009. I just came across a magazine called The Futurist, and there was a small ad for um, the program at the University of Houston. And I called a longtime mentor of mine and said, is this a thing? Like, what is this professional foresight? And he validated that it actually was a thing. And he's like, yeah, get yourself some training in this. Like you'd, you'd be a natural. Cause I had been working as a demographer and doing like generational change forecasts. And I did not know that futuring was a thing. I was just mm. looking at population changes. The name of my business is Next Generation Consulting. And uh, I started it 15 years before I knew foresight was a thing. So I went back to school as a as an old ass lady and uh, got a professional certificate in foresight and have just continued to learn at the feet of amazing teachers, which is getting easier and easier through the interwebs because now there are some of the OGs in foresight are teaching online and it's incredible to get that kind of tutelage. So I think it's easier than ever to get a degree in foresight. If you want to become a professional futurist, you have to get credentialed at the Association of Professional Futurists. And that's a, that's a designation I have. I have an APF degree behind my name, and there are about 450 of us who do in the world. So it's a very small group of folks. Yeah. And are they, are most of the people who have that accreditation, are they in particular locations in the world? Like, is it mainly the US? Or are they all over? They're all over. APF is a global association that does this credentialing. And like our fastest growth area right now is in Asia. The, the amount of interest in foresight during the pandemic, as one example, the president of the Philippines is getting foresight training right now and has required everyone in his cabinet to get trained in professional foresight wow. because they just don't want to be caught in a lurch. I think I'm getting this right. I believe at least 25% of the global seafaring commerce that happens, 25% of the entire workforce for any kind of commerce, ships that haul goods around, 25% of the workforce is in the Philippines. So wow. they have been 
significantly impacted by what has happened with COVID and they do not want to see this happen again. You know, they want to be on the front end of changes like this. They don't want to be the victims Mm -hmm. of large disruptions. They want to be able to be more agile and adaptive. Yeah. Wow. And that's incredible that, I, I mean, that they're putting that much um, sort of investment, time, money, manpower, you know, into this. But it's really interesting, too, that we had that sort of infrastructure in place in our country, in the United States previously, but now doesn't exist so much. And and so I'm curious, does that exist now? Is there an office of the future or something in if there's not anything in our government, not you're nodding in the, your head. Okay. No, not in the US. Um, so the UK, United Kingdom, um, has an office of the future. In New Zealand, every three years, like cabinet level plans. So like Department of the Interior that does all the parks, for example, they ha- every three years, they have to take their, I don't know if it's a five or a 10 year future, but they have to rinse it through New Zealand's expectations of what the 20 year future is going to be. So New Zealand is being impacted by climate change. New Zealand's, they have got huge labor force issues there. So New Zealand keeps its own sort of 20 year view of the future and then requires every cabinet level department to review their plan against the 20 year forecast to make sure that they are acting in accordance with what the country believes that the future will be, which is just a wonderful sort of a quality control mechanism. The president of Portugal has recently appointed a czar for the future to make sure that current decisions keep the next generation in mind. Um, And that's the definition of intergenerational equity, which the King of Sweden, uh, who, who was one of the first kings to start talking about sustainability, like making sure that the economy and the environment are sustainable. When he stood up his sustainability, like blue ribbon panel in the 1980s, or whenever it was, one of their founding principles was around intergenerational equity. And what that means, and it's a, it's a principle of my organization, mm. that principle says, that today's decisions will be made in a way that honors current generations and future generations. In other words, no decision is going to be made today that favors you and I over our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren, that they must be at parity in how we think about decisions. And that really is a useful guide. Yeah, my gosh. I mean, I think like, I don't, I mean, I don't know that I've ever made decisions in that way. You know, it's like, even if I'm making decisions for my children and I'm making decisions for them often on their behalf for their future, but then thinking about their children, my grandchildren or their, their children's children, like it's a whole other thing to think about how, I would make decisions. I mean, yeah, it would be very, very interesting whether from the everyday, like, would I use so many plastic bags to some of the broader sort of big, big questions. Yeah. I mean, I think I'll definitely be thinking about things a little bit differently after this conversation. I'm curious too, you know, you mentioned like for people who 
are interested in this field and want to learn a little bit more, there's some education related programs where specifically, you know, universities in different parts of the world have these programs. I know you also mentioned that there's opportunities to learn from some great people online. So I was curious if you could just mention maybe how do we find a few of those? If we're just, if we're curious like me yeah, absolutely, <laughs> um, or anyone else. I, it's a it's a great question, and if you have if you feel the pull of this, do yourself a favor and just learn a little bit more. I really think that when we have the universe kind of tapping on our shoulder uh, in this way, you can ignore it for a while. But if that tap just keeps coming back, you really owe it to yourself because this might be some of your your unique music to play in the world. So there's an organization based in Palo Alto, California called Institute for the Future, IFTF. And one of their lead consultants is a woman named Jane McGonigal, who is a firecracker. She's fantastic. Jane McGonigal. And she's designed a course called Ready, Set, Future that is free on Coursera. So I, I know I just threw a word salad at everybody. Just go to Coursera and search for Ready, Set, Future, and you'll okay. find this free course. Institute for the Future also every month does free webinars on some topic related to the future. Like in the last several months, I've gone to one on the future of cybersecurity. I've talked about, or I haven't talked about, I've attended some on the future of climate change and some of the long-term projections for that. They did a deep dive with a, a company called Dolby. You, you may, Dolby surround sound. Yeah. They're, you know, like a kind of an acoustic entertainment company, related company. They talked about how they stood up a foresight team within their organization to help the company think more futuristically about the future of sound. Wow. Um, yeah. So they have an amazing network and set of connections. So that's one place to look. This is, it's 2022 when we're taping this. So I know that this year, this company named Kedge, K-E, D like David, G like George, E. So it's like the word edge with a K in front of it, Kedge. They're doing what they're calling the year of free, where uh, they're giving a lot of their foresight tools, techniques, and frameworks away for free. And this company is started by two people who used to work at Disney. And why does that matter? Because Disney is one of the only companies I know of that has said foresight is a required skill if you want to get into the C-suite. So it's part of their competency model for wow. becoming an executive at Disney. That's amazing. Okay. Well, thank you for those wonderful resources. That sounds so fun. I'm going to go look them up for sure after this. <laughs> so you've given us sort of some great insight into what you do, some wonderful tools that we can apply to ourselves. Also an example of like, what you do with an organization. And, you know, I, I'm curious to ask you with kind of what's happening in the world and we're in, I mean, or maybe I'm wrong in saying this, but I, it feels like we are in this huge season of collective change and shifting, like, and at least for myself, and maybe I just wasn't paying attention before, but it just feels like so much bigger than anything else that I've ever experienced in my lifetime. Um, and, and on a personal level, having new little people come into the world, but also, right, like just everything that we sort of knew 
is feeling very different right now. So I'm I'm wondering, first of all, do you feel like that is a collective and global viewpoint? I'd love to hear you speak to that. And then with that being the case, for people who are feeling the same way as me, or even if they're not, but maybe they have that feeling in the future, what are some things that you do as a futurist to try to figure out like what things should we be paying attention to? What things should we completely ignore and not stress out over? What things, you know, should we be like, if I notice this, let me let me do something with this information. Because I think right now we're living in this world of there's so much information. There's so much we can pay attention to. There's so much happening every day that feels like we do have some control. And yet there's also a lot that feels like we have no control. So I'm I'm wondering from your perspective as this professional futurist, like I would love to get your perspective, kind of what I'm reflecting to you, but then also just what you're seeing in your job every day. Yes. I just want to affirm that what you are feeling is widely shared. It reminds me a little bit of, um, I've mentioned that I live in the upper Midwest and there's this phenomena called black ice. Mm -hmm. So it's when a very thin layer of ice, what what usually happens is we get in in the winter, late, really late fall or very early spring or in the middle of the winter, we get some precipitation like sleet or maybe even rain. And then the conditions freeze quite quickly. So you can imagine like when the sun goes down, right? Everything gets a lot colder when the sun goes down. So if we've had a little bit of sleet or a little bit of rain or mist, and then the sun goes down and things get really cold quickly, this black ice forms over the road. And what makes it so dangerous is you can't tell that you're driving on ice because it just looks like the asphalt. But then if you tap your brake, you start to fishtail. And so I think, you know, for, for so many reasons, we are in an, we are in unprecedented territory, whether it's health related, whether it's about return to office, whether it's about how jobs are changing, whether it's about like, are our kids going to be okay? Are our partners going to be okay? The mental health challenges that people have had, um, learning loss in, in schools and so forth. So many things have changed so fundamentally that it feels like we're on black ice. And what what we want to do during those moments, I can tell you as a person who's lived with this black ice for a long time, is when you feel your car begin to slide, do you know what your first instinct is, Julie? The brake. Tap the brake. Yeah. <laughs> but what happens when you tap the brake? Your car starts to fishtail even more. What you're supposed to do when you hit black ice, this sounds completely counterintuitive, but I think the metaphor is apt. What you're supposed to do is turn in to the direction that your car starts to face. Mm. If you if you take the wheel and you turn in the opposite direction because you're trying to course correct, like your right. car starts listing to the right and you think like, oh, I'll tap the brake or I'll turn left, you make it a lot worse and more okay. dangerous for other people. So you're actually supposed to lean into the turn. And I think it's a really nice metaphor for what's happening right now is, yep, things feel messy. Like, let's just lean into this and have kind of radical acceptance things are messy right now. 
I'm going to be messy right now. I'm not going to maybe always say the right things, or I'm not going to do the right things, but I'm going to give other people a lot of grace and a lot of latitude. And I'm going to have to probably ask for grace and latitude from other people as well, because I feel like I am on black ice right now. And it's really natural to want to stop or turn against it because it's not, doesn't feel natural to you. But if you can just kind of try to turn into it a little bit. So maybe you're very plannerly and you normally like to have plans, plans, plans. Maybe you say, you know, for the next few months, I'm going to experiment with not having a plan so that I can really be present with my family, really be present with my husband so that we can start having some of the bigger questions that don't fit into a plan. So that's one thing that I would that I would say, I will also tell you as a futurist, I do not read the news every day. Mm. I just don't. Because the news, I ca- I called it recently, I, did I call it the doom spiral or the despair spiral on my blog? Because what the news does is it keep, it, this is what I've noticed it does for me. Okay. It keeps me in this space where nothing feels close enough that I can actually take action on it and everything feels terrible enough that I naturally want to do something to help or right. to change things. And that sort of no man's land really makes you feel icky. Like I can literally feel my chest tightening as I'm talking about this, right? Yeah. So national politics, global climate change, stories of things that are happening in, in the Mountain West. I mentioned this water shortage. Those things are so far away that I can't take a direct action that mm-hmm. can help and they feel terrible. So, so I don't dip into the national news every day. I tend to watch PBS news hour on Fridays, sometimes on Mondays, but I watch PBS news hour once a week. I read the, a, a couple of news summaries every week just to make sure I, I don't miss out on the big stuff. And if there's really big stuff that happens, somebody is going to tell me. Like, it's not right. like I live with my head under a rock. Like right. I got a family and I'm connected with people. I'll find out. So that might be one way to just give yourself some of the psychic space to not get caught up in the whack-a-mole of everyday living. And then the other thing I would just say is, you know, you said, so what can you ignore? Generally, I think you can ignore most of the national news and definitely ignore things that either don't concern you or you can't take action on. But what that requires you knowing is what you really care about. Like I have a friend who really cares about the Cleveland baseball team, the Cleveland MLB baseball team. That is what he spends his care units caring about. Good Mm -hmm. for him. A lot of us, we don't know what we want to spend our care units on. So we think reading the national news is what we should do. And then we end up with this feeling of ennui or just general malaise or like feeling ineffective. So stop doing things that make you feel that way better to be involved with your care units and your attention units on things that you can impact that also matter a lot to you. And then, you know, I think the, for me, some of the things that are like, no bullshit, these things are absolutely changing and we need to pay attention to this is climate is becoming more pronounced. And when you just look at insurance, I always follow the money, insurance and reinsurance, We've got major insurers who are now requiring you to have a climate plan to build resiliency into major systems. When the insurance starts changing, the world will start 
it really does start changing. Just follow the money. So climate, the ability for the white population to decenter themselves from conversations and to bring the voices of people of color, the LGBTQIA community. And the reason this matters is, is it's not just because it's morally the right thing to do, which I do believe it is, but it's also because of this. Imagine a building. Imagine a building that the entrance is higher than the ground floor. So think about any state capital or many older institutions, even many houses, right? If we, if we build a ramp to that building, everybody can walk on it. Mm-hmm. If we build stairs to that building, we end up having to build stairs and a ramp. Yes. Okay. So when I'm talking about like how we treat women at work is usually a really good indicator of how everybody at work gets treated because like women are the ones who are often marginalized. They have carry most of the family responsibilities and so forth. So if we can start to build workplaces, for example, that are honoring of women, we're building a ramp and we don't have to build a ramp and stairs in our communities. If we can start centering our communities of color in conversations, we actually are going to create a much better community for far more people because they are the ones who have often been marginalized in our communities. They've been, you know, here in Madison, they're on the same side of town where we have a lot of off-gassing from our utility plants, right? Mm. So if we can center them in a conversation around the future of the community, we're going to end up creating better air for everybody in the community. So these are some things that aren't going to go away. And as far as community life goes, we're going to have to continue to pay attention to. Yeah. And it's such an interesting example, the ramp versus the ramp and the stairs. Um, And I is like personal tidbit. It's like, I appreciate that because while I've never needed a ramp per se for myself, I have often needed it when I used to help my grandmother who had a walker back many years ago and now having kids when there are <laughs> when there are stairs and no ramp nearby and you have a stroller it is very very challenging especially as a woman trying to get a very heavy stroller <laughs> in the child up the stairs or down the stairs so yes so I can appreciate that for um sort of the example that it shares, you know, not only on a personal basis, but just in my own life, but as a, a broader example of society and and just, yeah, the importance of allowing everybody to rise equally. Yeah. So I love this conversation so much. I feel like I could probably ask you questions and go on for hours and hours. But since I do not have the opportunity to do that, I want to ask you, you know, as we wrap up, like, is there anything that's really surprising or super fun or super awesome um, and radical about your job that um, maybe I wouldn't know to ask, but that you would like to share with us um, or anyone who's interested in being a futurist in the future? Oh, boy. I think, is it radical or exciting? I guess what I want to say is this. Signals of the future are occurring right now. They are happening all around you. 
But the way that we have been conditioned over time to see things and to recognize patterns, it makes these things invisible to us. It makes us blind to them. So a really fun thing to do, and one of the reasons kids are great, is because they notice everything. Everything is new to their little brains that haven't yet been conditioned. And those neural pathways are all still open and firing. So one of the things that I want to say is, although a lot of people, it's really easy to get into the doom spiral or to be nihilistic about the future. I don't believe that at all. Because when I visit local communities, and I see how people are seeing the future differently, additional voices are in the conversation about the future, new things are being invented. I think the future is very bright. And get out in your community and talk to people about what they're working on for the future, what they're excited about the future. And it is astonishing in the best way to see what is happening all around us, the future that is being invented all around us. I love that. And kids certainly do have the most amazing way of looking at things and looking at life. Like my older son, we cannot do anything or bring anything new into the house without him noticing it's really like an amazing skill. I'm like, how did you notice that? I didn't say anything. You know, it could be like a candy bar that we were trying to hide or what have you, or a toy we were trying to hide till the holidays or his birthday or something. And then, yeah, my, my, or my middle one now, he's like so excited about the simplest things. And I'm like, oh, I just love that four-year-old joy. Like he'll just be so gleeful about a sandwich or something. (laughs) I'm like, I love it so much. So yes, I I think that's such a great example, you know, and just the optimism that you have as a futurist, I think is so helpful because, um, yeah, maybe ignoring a bit of the news um, (laughs) and trying to see what we do see and talk to the people in our communities and the places we go is so valuable. And um, it's, it's nice to, to know that you have such an optimistic outlook because we certainly want that for us, but we also want it for the future generations. Yeah. So with that, I want to ask you the very last question. And I ask this for every single interview. So I'm excited to hear what your answer is going to be as a futurist. So to end our conversation, will you share a sentence that uses verbiage or jargon from your field, then translate it so it's understandable to us? Yes. The sentence is, what is in the cone of plausibility? Okay. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So remember when we talked about doing an expectable, a challenging, and a visionary future? Yes. Right? So we talked about this range of futures. Well, the way that futurists will often illustrate that is by using a cone, So on the left is the small opening of the cone, and on the right is the really big opening of the cone. And it's just showing from left to right. It's like over time, like time is kind of on the x-axis. So the cone of plausibility is futurist nerd talk for the range of plausible futures. Okay. Yeah. And so it widens as it as things go along. As time goes on, more that. things are plausible in the plausible okay. futures. I love it. That's a great example. Thank you so much for being here. If people want to reach you and find you, how do they do that? Easy. It's my name, RebeccaObrien.com. And Rebecca is spelled R-E-B-E-C-C-A. Ryan, like the boy's name, R-Y-A-N. RebeccaObrien.com. Thank you so much, Julie. 
Thank you. This has been such a fun and interesting conversation. So I'm so glad that I found out you exist as a futurist. Oh, man. Well, thank you for reaching out. And thank you for this wonderful service you're doing for your listeners. I know that you recently hit your 50th episode, you followed it up with your three spark episodes, your three part series. So congratulations to you for the tenacity and obviously the planning that went into this (laughs) series. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been so much fun. So I'm so glad you could be part of it. Thanks, Julie. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Women with Cool Jobs. I'll be releasing a new episode every two weeks. So make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you loved the show, please give me a five-star rating. Also, it would mean so much if you shared this episode with someone you think who would love it or would find it inspirational. And lastly, do you have ideas for future shows or do you know any rock star women with cool jobs? I would love to hear from you. You can email me at julie at womenwithcooljobs.com or you can find me on Instagram at womencooljobs. Again, that's womencooljobs. Thank you so much for listening and have an incredible day.